uh, that your spirit would be thick, uh, that you would just teach our hearts more about you. You would help us to see you more clearly. I pray that you'd speak through Michael, uh, you'd speak through, strongly through your word, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Hey, Peter, would you go back to the third verse for a minute, please? One, yep, that one. As we as we think about our text this morning, um, that should be in the back of our mind. It should move us and guide us. Dear dying Lamb, Thy precious blood. We read about that in chapter one. That that precious blood of Christ um, that allows us into His presence. It shall never lose its power. That also theme from chapter 1. You are guarded by faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then we look forward to that day to all the ransomed church of God. Not just the few of us in here, but uh, those that are worshiping all across the world today and have been for the last 20 centuries and will be until Christ returns that we will gather together uh, as a glorious body and worship and praise the one who has not only made us but redeemed us through that precious blood of his son. May that be the foundation of, of where we go this morning. Um, and it has been as we, thanks Phil, as we have talked about um, the theme, and it's in your bulletin. I think it's up there. Yeah, it is. Sometimes I forget. Um, Peter is writing to teach them based on what God has done, the death and resurrection of Christ, uh, the empowering of the Spirit, how to live where they don't belong when they're facing difficulties. And we've said over and over that applies to us and the, the reminder of this is out of place for me and so I'm just going to wear this Sunday after Sunday as a reminder that we don't Something's not right here. Sometimes a lot of things aren't right here. But ultimately we wait for, for that final justice to be done. Um, and we're going to talk about that again and again. And, and you may feel like um, Frodo Baggins. We've been here before. We're going in circles. As he and Sam were lost, if you remember that part of the movie, um, the themes continue to reemerge. And we need to think about that. If Peter continues to talk about the, some of the same things over and over again through the inspiration of the Spirit, might that not be a clue that that's important for us? And so we come to the end of chapter 3 today, and look, we're going to look at verses 13 through 22. Um, the second half of that section is a particularly difficult section. Martin Luther said this, This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the Apostle meant. And he has not been alone. From the earliest days, people that commented on First uh, Peter, the end of chapter 3, have scratched their heads and said, I don't exactly know what he means by some of that. Up to the modern day. Uh, we'll talk about maybe some of that this morning if we have time, but there are plenty of things in there that are clear um, that we will flesh out in a moment. 
So let me read to you, beginning in chapter 3, verse 13. Peter, as he has been talking about um, the church and how we respond to one another, he then moves back now that our focus is still there, but it's also back out into the world. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which now corresponds to this, now saves you, not a removal of dirt from the body, but, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to Him. Let's pray. Fathers, look at Your Word this morning. I pray that You would use it to strengthen our hearts. God, I ask that You would open our ears and our minds and our hearts to understand, and ultimately, God, our wills to obey. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Peter asks a question, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? That strikes me as odd. Who, who, who can harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Can anybody? Can harm come to you if, if you strive for goodness? Yeah. Who? Men. <laughs> yeah, they can. In what ways? Physically. Physically, yes. Pain, torture, death. How else? Verbally. Verbally. Right. Peter's talked about that. Slander, right? Defi- being defi- being reviled. Good. What else? Financially. Financially. Yes. It can bring you to ruin you or your business or people can steal from you, take things that don't belong to them, right? Is Peter... Confused? <laughs> Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous? He asked that question as though the answer is no one, right? But if you look at the structure of, of the first two verses, now who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed? Uh, the structure of that passage looks like this. And Peter, being a, a good Jew, a good Hebrew, they often wrote in, in parallelism, and the structure would, would add meaning. And so what he's saying is that harm and blessing occupy the same realm. Okay? So now another question. How are you blessed? No one in here is blessed. We are saved. Okay. Good, we've read about that and sung about that this morning extensively, right? A redemption is a blessing. How else are we blessed? 
and we have security in that. It's not just this thing that I can walk out the door and the wind blows funny and God changes his mind, right? How else are we blessed? We have the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit, yes. In, in somewhere other, uh, many of us can count blessings that we can actually that are tangible. We might think that that idea of salvation is kind of intangible; that that's hard to grasp, hard to get hold of, right? But we we use that terminology, right? I felt blessed last night when my wife and daughter made it safely home from Mississippi. It seemed like a blessing from God, from His hand, goodness from Him, right? We feel blessed that we have money in the bank. We feel blessed that we have a car in the driveway. We feel blessed that there's food in the pantry, right? And all those things seem true, correct? And they are, not diminishing that. But I think part of what Peter, and so yes, we are blessed, but can you go back one for a second? Part of what Peter's trying to say is, as we think about harm and blessing, we want to think about them in the same realm, okay? And that's important because what can happen to the food in the pantry and the money in the bank and the car in the driveway? They can go away, right? What can happen to our health and our safety? It can go away, right? We can be harmed, right? Peter's whole point through this passage, though, through this book, is there are certain blessings that people can't take away, and there are certain ways that people cannot harm you. That's the point. He's not missing the fact that life is difficult. He brings that out. These people are out of place. They're where they don't belong. They've been, we think, forcibly removed from their home and put somewhere else. They're undergoing difficulties. He's not unaware of that. Okay. He hasn't forgotten what he just wrote in the previous passage about being sympathetic and compassionate towards one another, right? He hasn't turned a switch, and now he's being this mean ogre, right? The question really is, ultimately, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Who really can take away those true blessings? And so he then, if that's true... If everything that he said up to this point, especially chapter 1 in these last few verses, if that's true, then he expects his readers and us to live a certain way. And he fleshes that out beginning in the end of verse 14. Have no fear of them, the ones who can physically harm you, the ones who can financially harm you, the ones who can take what is yours. Have no fear of them, but instead, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, set apart Christ as holy in your hearts. In other words, make Him the one that that your heart beats after, right? So, So we live that way. We fear God and we don't fear man. Because ultimately, what we fear controls us. What we fear controls us.
loves us. How do we know that's true? What are some things that, that we fear on this earth? What are some things we fear? Things that can eat us, right? Okay. So, Andy, you're out walking in the woods, and you come upon a bear, and the bear is not happy, right? Now, at, at that moment in time, right, you, you may or may not experience fear. I would. Okay. I would experience fear. And that's going to take over. Maybe in a good way, right? But that is going to take over. Okay. I may fear... Uh, a certain political position that the nation is moving towards or is in, right? If that's where, if, if that is my fear, that will control me, right? That will force my thoughts a certain way. That will, uh, if that's what I've, I've allowed in my heart, if that's the fear that is, that is present and evident, it will control me, okay? And what controls us is what directs our hope. So again, back to Andy and the bear, right? So he's overcome with fear. His hope is that number one, his gun is loaded or his knife is sharp enough or his feet are fast enough, right? And really that's kind of where his hope is, right? Reminds me of the story of the, of the, the guy who was walking along the ridge and he was hunting and a bear comes rumbling out of the woods and he trips and he falls down the, the ridge. Breaks his leg, he's laying there, his gun's 20 feet away, and the bear's running down the hill. And his only hope now is in the Lord, so he prays. And he's scared, so his prayer is something like this, Dear Lord, please make this bear a Christian. <laughs> and the bear comes to a stop, falls on his knees. Dear Lord, thank you for this food I'm about to eat. <laughs> if we're... If we're afraid of a political position, then our hope is that position is going to change. Our hope is in a new candidate, or our hope is in a new law, or our hope is in something else, right? And Peter says, don't fear men, but set Christ as Lord in your heart as holy. In other words, what we set in our heart as holy, what we set in our heart as Lord, that's ultimately what we fear. We talked about the fear of the Lord back again in chapter 1. Right? Nothing is new for Peter. He's bringing up these same thoughts over and over again. If God is the one we fear, if He's the one that's Lord of our life and not the bear or not politics or not man of any shape, form, or fashion, then that is where we'll set our hope. Which again is what Peter commands us to do in chapter 1. Set your hope completely on the grace that is to be real, revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we live, if, if we are blessed, if we believe that our blessings really are in the spiritual realm, as Paul said, he said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If that's true, then we live a certain way. We fear God and not man. But we also need to be ready to defend that hope that comes from making Christ Lord of our life. He keeps going. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Okay? So we need to be ready to defend our hope. Now, that word defend is the word apologia. 
lot of you who have homeschooled, you've used apologia science. We think of the word apologetics. When we think of apologetics, what do we think about? What comes to mind? Josh McDowell, right? What else do we think about? Defending your faith. Defending your faith. Defending your, what part of your faith? When we think about apologetics, what tends to get defended? I think there's some, yes, that's true, but I think some more popular than that. In, in Southern evangelical culture, there are other things that get defended more than the existence of God. We, we do apologetics over creation versus science, right? What else do we do apologetics over? We do apologetics over baptism. baptism. What else? Doctrine. Certain doctrines, yes. The truth of God's Word. The truth of God's Word, yeah, this. In our culture today, it's a, it's a big thing. Works versus, faith. Works versus faith, yes. And we also are really good about uh, defending certain political stances, and we use this to help us do that, right? What's interesting is the focus here is not on necessarily the defense. The focus here, by his wording and the way he says it, is on our hope. That our, our apologetic, first and foremost, should be driven by the fact that someone else sees a hope that we have. And the only way that they're going to see a hope that we have is if Christ is Lord of our hearts, and if He's the one that we fear, and if He's the one that controls, if, if He's the one that drives our hope. Because you see, if, if I'm afraid of man, if I'm afraid of, of a certain political stance the country has taken, if that's where my hope is, then, then that's what people are going to notice in me because that's what I'm going to talk about all the time. And that's what I end up having to defend. And to be quite honest, you're, you're spinning your wheels and you're wasting your time trying to defend a certain political stance. Scripture doesn't, doesn't ask us to necessarily defend a political stance. Scripture asks us to live holy and righteous and just lives and let the world notice that and go... In the midst of me treating you like dirt, why do you still have joy and hope? Oh, let me tell you, because one day, right... Scripture always points us to where our real hope lies. Which Peter talks about three times in chapter 1. And every one of those times is linked to the resurrection. That's where our hope is. It's that God will one day set all things right. So... Uh, we fear what controls us. What controls us directs our hope. We need to be ready to defend that hope through not only our words, but also our behavior. Notice he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ can be put to shame. The goal is always for the other person to see us and ultimately for our, 
our behavior, the way we live, to make a change in them. Put them to shame. Oh, man, I was wrong about you Christians. You're not who I thought you were. That hope is deeper than any slander or abuse or pain I can inflict on you. I want that. That's the goal. And so even in the midst of unjust suffering, right? But that's not fair, is it? That's a great ending to that paragraph. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. In other words, sometimes it is. Sometimes God wills for us to suffer. Now, sometimes we suffer because we're idiots and we sin and we do dumb things. Okay? Don't put that on God. But sometimes God puts us in places where we suffer so that the world can see our hope. If I'm not suffering, if I'm enjoying the blessings of a good life, then oftentimes that's where my hope tends to get placed. It was like the Israelites came into the promised land. He said, don't forget me when you've got houses and vineyards and gardens that, by the way, you didn't build or plant or supply. And what did they do? They got in the promised land and they forgot him, right? Because their hope was in their stuff. And then when their stuff started going bad and God sometimes wouldn't intervene and they turned to false idols. Well, that nation prays to that God when the crops won't grow. Maybe we should do that too because God's being quiet. And maybe God was being quiet and maybe it was a bad year because he wanted for everybody else to see that their hope was in God and that's where their trust was. So how do we do that? How do we suffer unjustly? How do we do that? How do we manage to do that? What helps us to suffer unjustly? What helps us to suffer with hope? How do we do that? Very practically. talks about that before several times through 1 Peter. Where is our mind? Paul said, set your mind on things above, not on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? So we, we dwell on, we think on, we remember, we memorize the promises of God. What does Peter tell us to do? I don't think he doesn't tell us to do those things, but very specifically, what has he done over and over again when he's come to a point that seems like, ah, that, that's hard. What's he always, what did he tell us to do when we, he was asking us to submit? What did he do? What was the hinge of that whole passage? What was the middle of that whole passage? Person of Christ, Person of Christ right? Jesus was crucified unjustly. It says in verse 18, For Christ also suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. You want to talk about injustice? He suffered for you and I, right? Why? To bring us to God. 
What's the purpose, again, of your behavior in this letter over and over again? The purpose of our behavior in this letter is what? Submission. No, that's what it looks like. What's the purpose? What's the purpose? I mean, that's the purpose of the whole letter, but what's the purpose of him telling us how to live? What's the purpose of us living a certain way where we don't belong? <clears throat> it's a witness, yes. Right? <clears throat> Remember back? Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That theme comes up several times. Right? Why did Jesus suffer? For you. Right? It's what it says. See, we've said before, God is not calling us to do anything that He has not already done Himself in Christ Jesus. You just need, that needs to just stick in your head. God is not calling you to do anything that He has not called His Son to do. And that His Son didn't obediently do calls us to submit, that's what Jesus did. He calls us to suffer unjustly, that's what Jesus did. He's called us to have hope in the midst of that suffering, that's what Jesus did. Hebrews 12. For the hope set before Him, He endured the cross. It's exa- that, that's the story, that's the theme, that's what we're called to do. And so then what He does in, <clears throat> a lot of things I don't know what He does in 18 through 22, but there are some things I know that he does. One of the things Peter does is he gives us a progression of what that hope looks like by using four, sorry for the grammar, participles that highlight, and they're all passive participles. They're all things that were done to Jesus, and it's a progression. So, main verb, he suffered, and then there's these four participles in the rest of the passage. Being put to death, passive. Someone did that to him. Now, we know that he also gave himself, but Peter's bringing out that happened to him. He was put to death. I don't like that part. I might suffer a little bit. I might let you take something. I might let you hurt me, but I don't like the death part. That's okay because that's not where it stops. End of verse 18, being put to death. Second participle. He was made alive in the Spirit. third participle, down at the very end after this intervening digression, which we'll get to in a second. The ESV says, who has gone into heaven? Sounds like that's kind of active. It's a passive verb. Who was brought into heaven? So we went from death to life to glory. And then finally, angels and authorities and powers were subjected to Him. He went from death to life to glory, to all authority. That's where our hope is. That's what, of anything else, Peter's trying to say in here about him going back and talking about Noah and preaching and stuff that we don't get. The structure of the passage clearly shows us here is where our hope is. His death, His life, His glorification, His authority. That's the one that's the example. And 
when we identify with Him in this digression of baptism, we'll talk about that in a second briefly, that's the same path that we will follow. When we, we changed allegiance from our own kingdom to God's kingdom, we went from, we said, I, I want to die with you. I want to die to self. That's death. <clears throat> and then He made us new. We were brought to life when we died to self, right? And one day we will be like Him for we will see Him as He is, John says. <clears throat> we will be glorified, Paul says in Romans 8. And... We will reign with Him. That same progression is our same progression, and that is where our hope is. I don't need to reign now. I don't need to have mastery over those who are making me suffer. I don't need to make myself look better for them. <clears throat> right? When Jesus says we need to do that with gentleness and respect, that word gentleness means not having an overestimation of myself. I don't think of myself more highly than I ought to. I don't need to keep you from causing me to suffer because one day I'm going to reign with Christ. That's the point of what Jesus is saying, of what Peter is saying here. <clears throat> but there is this digression he makes. He talks about Noah and baptism. We've, I've, I've talked this passage before maybe about a year ago and we went into more detail. And I'll be happy to talk in more detail offline but I want to just, just focus on, on one thing. Noah and the eight people, this is verse 20, he says, were brought safely through the water. Okay? And then he says, in verse 21, baptism, and this says, which corresponds to this, it's the word antitype. There's a, a type, which is the first instance, and then an antitype is something that refers to that. So he says, okay, Noah and the ark is the type, and your baptism is the antitype. It's what corresponds to that. It's what matches up with that. There's a one-to-one -one correspondence, okay? So water for Noah was what? It was death. Water was death. It was also what else? It was, but for Noah, it was his salvation. If there was no water, the boat's not going to float. Right? If God had chosen fire, the boat would burn. And so would Noah, right? So at the same time, that flood was both judgment and salvation. Okay? So, baptism corresponding to this, same idea, right? That water symbolizes both judgment, I have died to sin. I'm, I'm uniting myself in the death of Christ where ultimate judgment happened, right? But it's also our salvation, right? And he says, now before you get all worked up about this, it's not the physical washing away of the dirt. It's not the physical water that's doing that. He says, in the verse 21, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. And then there's this phrase that's repeated again. Remember, Noah was saved through water. We are saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those phrases match up. Again, the structure of the language in the Greek tells us that's what he's making the analogy. You are saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An appeal to a good 
conscience to God. God, I need a good conscience. I'm asking you for a good conscience. The only way I'm going to get that, Peter says, is through the resurrection of Christ. And baptism is that symbol of I'm dying to self and I'm uniting myself with God. And so, when we walk out this morning, number one, you remember that you are blessed. Regardless of your circumstances, you are blessed. And because we're blessed, God wants us to live a certain way. Don't fear men, fear God. Because when you do, that's what's going to control you. When that controls you, that's where your hope will be. And when that is where your hope is, the world will recognize that and will ask you. And so you need to be ready to say where your hope really is. It's in the fact that death doesn't matter because I'm going to be raised, I'm going to be glorified, and I'm going to reign with Christ. And I'm not saying that's easy to do because there are many, many, many things in this world that vie for our attention that want us to put them in our heart as holy and set apart and as Lord of our lives. But that's the struggle that we face, that all of us face. There is a, a hymn that... Oh, we went through the next one, too. We went through the digression, too. You can pass, see? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. But you've got all that. Okay. We're going to sing this song together without any instrumentation because that's what we're going to do. Um, because this is, this is what it's, we're talking about. We're going to go through these words. I want us to think about this as we sing. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. When, when those things that attack us, God is the one that never fails. Okay, next. And it's not just people in life, we have an enemy. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. You and I certainly aren't his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? If it was up to us, we would lose every time. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabbath, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the one who, who everything has been submitted to Him. That's His name. That's the one who's on our side. From age to age, the same. He must win the battle. That's not a hope must. That's a, a, the way they talked back then. He will win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His triumph, His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours, through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. In other words, don't fear those things. Don't let those control your heart. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. 
And that's by Martin Luther, who didn't understand that section, by the way. So, I do not have a song by Frodo. But, so let's stand and sing that together.